1: the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So good evening. So tonight we have the parable of the lost sheep, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So you may remember these stories, they may be unfamiliar to you. Either way, it's really about Jesus going to any lengths to rescue the lost, to search them out. And it caused me to think about how that sheep and that coin felt while they're waiting to be found. So the sheep, I imagine, is in the woods somewhere, caught up in brambles, can't do anything, just waiting. And the coin, too, in some dark, forgotten corner. And it's not daylight, apparently. She has to light a lamp. So forgotten, feeling forgotten. But what does it feel like to be lost like that? So I started thinking about what does loss mean to me? What what comes up for me? Well, the first thing is that my husband, Stuart, lost his phone Thursday night. And you never lose your phone, I'm sure. But we walk around just calling, calling, calling. Do you hear it? No calling, calling. No, do you hear it? No, do you hear it? So then I finally remember, oh, I have Find My Phone, you know, that that app. And so I look on my computer, and Google Earth tells me it's outside in the driveway. (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. Thank you, Google Earth. But I thought, how much more powerful God is than Google Earth, right? If Google Earth can find my phone, God can find you. So that, that made me feel much better. Then the TV drama Lost. I don't know if any of you were into that. or it, I think it's having resurgence right now, people watching Lost again. The terrible plane crash, uh, 48 passengers somewhere in the South Pacific, no one knows, and realizing that they're physically lost, but also the whole thing is about how they're spiritually lost, emotionally lost, they're um, just, it, it spins off in all kinds of ways. But the dictionary definition of lost is unable to find one's way. So not only has this plane crashed because it couldn't find its way, but it is an apt description of the human race and the human condition and what happens on that island with those people. Um, I'm also feeling just a little bit lost as I navigate the legal, the financial, the emotional sibling landscape of um, being the executor of my mom's estate. So there's all kinds of things like that I have never known, don't know how to do, really have to feel lost and ask for help to know that I have just a finite amount of skills and that does not include that. Um, And so, but I'm also finding out that there 's a big mystery about my mother, like as I go into this i 'm finding out more and more about her, so i 'm realizing that lost can also be a season in your life, just a time where you um, kind of have to be reoriented reoriented that you you can be lost, have a lost feeling, and there are many forms of lostness um, there are there 's that lost feeling when you 're trying to make a decision or take an action and you really want to do the right thing and you perseverate and don't know what to do, so um, you know that what, what am I supposed to do here can make you feel really unmoored. There's the feeling when you truly don't know what to do, like someone's been hurt or someone's sick or maybe has cancer, has died or is estranged from you. Where do you go? Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I call comes up with that. There is the lostness of getting what you want and then have it not be satisfying well, I thought that would make me happy, but it must be something else. I feel lost. What am I supposed to do with that? There's a lostness of loneliness. Who can I count on? Who cares about me? Who can I trust? What will happen to me? You know, a good thing can make you feel lost too, like um, starting college or starting a master's program, getting married having a baby. All of those can feel like I should know how this goes. Everybody else seems to know how this goes. I don't feel like I do. I should know how to do this naturally, but I don't. It's a lost feeling. There's the lost feeling of aging, maybe retirement, facing death. What will become of me? How will I know what's happening to me? What am I going to do? There's the deep lostness of addiction, whether it's to working, like a workaholism or a substance, that can really lead you into deep valleys and deep dark woods. Theologian Caroline Lewis writes that there is also the kind of lostness that has been imposed on you, that is, by others. Your own sense of unworthiness has been affirmed by those around you, by society, by systemic sin that has told you time and time again that you are best swept under the rug that you deserve to be overlooked. It doesn't take much effort to see the lost in our world, the lost that we ignore. So these parables are for those who have felt the losing, the lostness, the leastness, and the littleness of life. So not maybe specifically today. You may not be feeling that way today, but in some moment of your life, some hour, some day, some night, when your bootstraps might have broken, Or your best friend was lowered into a grave or sent to prison. Or your powerlessness over your addiction smacked you in the face. Or your overcomer got overwhelmed by a breakup or a breakdown or a crackdown. You found yourself reaching for comfort in earthly things. Earthly things that don't satisfy and don't last. And earthly things that can't keep up with your need for understanding and your need for love. So David Loes addresses this when he writes in the cross of Christ we recognize our penchant always to reject God's overtures to us and are compelled to admit our absolute inability to save ourselves. And in that recognition we who would always be in control of our destiny die. So our lostness can also be like that of the sheep where we run away And we get caught in the briars, or like the coin where we hide in the darkness of shame or obstinacy. So David Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, that came out this year, he talks about a fear of foundness in the middle of lostness. The Anglican priest and theologian John Stott called him and asked him to lunch. And Brooks, who's basically a journalist and a writer, said, great, I'll get to interview him, I'll get a good article out of it, it'll be... Great. But when they go to lunch, Stott starts asking a lot about him. He told me, this is what Brooks says, he told me that he sensed something in me, some motion toward God. I was unnerved. If the hound of heaven was nipping at my heels, that was either something I did not feel or a truth I did not want to face. I must have known unconsciously how much disruption to my life that would lead to. So I shut the door and blocked out the light. Well, Brooks goes on to say that he was not successful in entirely blocking out the light, but other cracks began to appear. It says from time to time, at first and then a steady pour. Moments of spiritual transcendence came to me as mesmerizing beauty. Sharp Cathedral casts a spell every time I visit, like a point of contact between our world and that of some other world unseen. So then came his divorce, and the bottoming out of that experience. He says that at first you want to grip the steering wheel of life tighter, trying to redirect life. But then you get defeated. You just let go of the wheel. Through and after the pain, there were what Brooks calls stray moments of porousness, And he adds, I was going about my normal everyday life when suddenly, for reasons I don't understand, some mystical intrusion pierced through, hinting at a deeper reality. Well, in the resurrection, we perceive that God's grace is stronger than our ability to block it out. So we can rest confident that God has acted to save us and all the world. And in hearing this word of grace, we come alive again, and we are new in Christ. So Jesus was sweeping the proverbial house, looking relentlessly for the coin that had the imprint of David Brooks. He was pushing aside the low branches and the thick brambles to find this lost sheep, just like he does for you and I. You may be wondering, how would I know if Jesus was looking for me? Don't I have to do something so that he would be looking for me? Become some sort of religious sheep to be in that fold? But Robert Capon says memorably, we haven't got a card in our hand that can even take a single trick with God. He will come into the world sins with no list to check, no tests to grade, no debts to collect, no scores to settle. Jesus' program remains firm. He saves losers and only losers. He raises the dead and only the dead. He rejoices more over the last, least, and the little than all the winners in the world. That alone is what this losing race of ours needs to hear, even though it can't stand the thought of it. You know, Romans 5.8 says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're a sinner, which this morning I heard Dave Zoll also describe that as someone that has limitations, can't do everything, someone who is self-centered, someone that doesn't know um, how to handle life, feels lost, then you are already being saved. It is being done for you on the cross without your permission, but with great love for you. This is Jesus Christ's gospel of death and resurrection, seeing the world's way of winning as thin mirages. We are all lost, but Jesus Christ is the finder of the lost. You are being found right where you sit in this pew, or at your house, or in your everyday life, as Brooks says, wandering in the dark woods like the lamb, or hiding in that dark corner like a lost coin. God rejoices rejoices in rescuing you from the deadness of loneliness, self-centeredness, fear, and the pain of life lived on your little island apart from God's love. And God brings you back to the 99, back to the 9, so that you are no longer estranged. You are not in charge. God is. And this truth will set you free. Amen.